Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author James Kaplan returns to tell Nate about his book, Frank, The Voice. In this episode, James and Nate discuss the youth of Frank Sinatra, his childhood and parents, his early struggles, his rise to fame singing for Harry James and Tommy Dorsey, his tenure as the teen idol of the war era, how it all fell apart, Ava Gardner, From Here to Eternity, and his amazing comeback. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by James Kaplan, author of Frank, The Voice, and Frank, The Chairman. James, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Nate. Thanks. And it's really exciting. I've been um, rolling around in these books for the last, gosh, ever since they came out, and, and then especially in the last 18 months or so, I've been reading, re-re- reading them and rereading them and really trying to get a handle on the young Frank Sinatra. So I'm so happy that you are willing to focus on the first book, The Voice, which is about young Frank Sinatra from his birth in 1915 all the way up until the day he accepts the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for From Here to Eternity. And this is kind of an obvious question, but how did he decide to divide his life right at that point? You know, uh, my initial contract uh, for the book with Doubleday said, uh, this is a contract they sent me, Life of Frank Sinatra, 352 pages. And after, after, after I had researched for a couple of years and begun to write, uh, I, I realized that it wasn't going to be 352 pages. And I more and more felt that this was, it was a life that was synonymous virtually with America in the 20th century. I mean, Sinatra in a lot of ways was the American century in the 20th century. And there was just he was just connected to too many things and people and events uh, to to go short. And so <laughs> I decided, I told my editor, I'm, I, I, this is where I'm breaking it. And I'll pick up the day after. And she was cool. And on we went. And it's really a 
it's, I guess, in retrospect, kind of an obvious place to divide the story because this first half of the story is such a classic American rags to riches tale, if not quite rags, but, you know, a prosperous lower middle class maybe to, to riches. And then this dramatic fall. I mean, this book has this narrative arc of rise, 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 rise. And then the fall begins and it is merciless. The, for somebody like me as a Gen Xer who's been working pretty hard to be a Frank Sinatra fan since the 90s, you know, with the Capitol reissues and and the whole lounge era and everything and going back and watching the Rat Pack movies and stuff. I always felt like I had a pretty good handle on the 50s and 60s era Frank Sinatra, but the 40s era Frank Sinatra was really kind of dark starred. I mean, he's he's kind of like the Beatles in their mop top phase where, you know, they're so overshadowed by the later Sgt. Pepper's era. And young Frank is really kind of a forgotten figure today, but I think it's important to remember this guy was, as you say in the book, the first instance of a celebrity or a performer triggering mass hysteria since the children's crusades in the Middle Ages. I mean, talk about how big he was at the time of the Paramount riots. Yeah, well, it's really impossible. It's really impossible virtually to imagine how big he was then, but he was... This was a it was a visceral phenomenon that began when Sinatra was still seen with Tommy Dorsey between 1939 and the end of 1942. When Sinatra first joined the band, it was the it was the height of the big band era. And Tommy Dorsey was very much the star of his own band. But what Tommy Dorsey began to notice at first with some amusement, but then with some annoyance and then anger was that. Gradually and then quickly, Sinatra became the star. Whenever Sinatra would do his singing break after Tommy Dorsey had played his magnificent trombone intro, Frank would come to the microphone and without really knowing what was happening, uh, every female in the room, whether it was a, a, a nightclub or a theater or wherever, would begin to move toward the stage, uh, unconsciously staring at Frank, sighing about Frank, and then uh, kind of beginning to uh, swoon a little bit and, and, uh, and, and here and there faint. And at first, Dorsey and his musicians made, made fun of Frank for this, but uh, Dorsey was a gigantic ego. He did not like being overshadowed. And, uh, but he also was a great businessman, and he saw the unavoidability, if that's a word, of Sinatra. And, and, and Frank, <clears throat> Frank really became the star. And so when he went out solo, and he had no idea this was going to happen, but when he went out solo, the, the stage was pretty much set for him to become a nationwide phenomenon. We were uh, at that point uh, in early 1943, smack in the middle of World War II. Sinatra was uh, was singing these beautiful yearning ballads that that fit so well. They dovetailed perfectly with the American mood of, of yearning and, and fear and worry and sadness at the time. And that combined with uh, all those pheromones that he gave off just made him uh, made him a uh, a phenomenon like no other beforehand. You know, Bing Crosby had been a star, had been a big singing star, and he was uh, he was a movie star, and he had a radio show, and uh, Bing was a huge star. But Bing was a cool character. Uh, Bing did not Bing did not trigger mass hysteria the way Frank did. Uh, uh, Joe Stafford, who sang along with Frank uh, in the Dorsey Band, told me when I interviewed her, uh, she was talking about 
Dorsey and Frank, and she compared the two by temperature. She said uh, Dorsey was a cool customer and Frank was a warm Italian boy. And that really sums up some of the difference between being Crosby and Frank Sinatra. And like you say, Crosby's this overwhelming figure. And I've been lucky enough to talk to Gary Giddens about him a couple times in the last year and really trying to wrap my head around just how mammoth Bing Crosby was at the time. And I don't think you can overstate his influence on other singers or his impact on the radio. But like you said, he never had that kind of crazy fangirl response. Rudy Valley of any of the crooners that came out around the same time as being is, is the one who got that kind of response and Ross Columbo to a lesser extent, but none of that matched what exploded out of, of, you know, the Paramount theater and, and the forties with Frank. I mean, it, it's very much a precursor to Elvis or the Beatles. And I think, like you say, it's a very, I think we can look don't back forget, and say that. Don't that's forget very, Martin Lewis. <laughs> uh, yes. Martin and Lewis as well. And, and also Johnny Ray around that same time had a lot of hysterical responses and that's, yes. yes. uh, you know, turn of the decade from the 40s to the 50s. And we'll get to that, what was a dark era for Frank. But let's let's take back a little and talk about the context that we're talking about. Frank, you know, born in 1915 in Hoboken and uh, comes to his maturity in the Depression, very much a child of the Depression. And and as you say, you know, he, he's, radio was the big medium at the time. It's just become a national phenomenon. There's no television. Movies are obviously very big, but radio's free. And, and more and more people have it in their homes. The Sinatras had one in their home. And, you know, you say you can't over, overstate the importance of Bing Crosby on Frank Sinatra. And yet, Unlike so many of his contemporaries like Perry Como and Dean Martin and others who never really escaped the Bing Crosby shadow. I mean, those are great singers in their own way, but they're very it's very obvious that they're massively influenced by Bing. And yet, Frank, you can hear the Bing Crosby influence, but he's always his own man from day one. What do you think that was? Well, Bing was uh, Bing was a brilliant man. He was really kind of an intellectual. He was a cool character, as I said, a little bit distant, a little bit removed, actually a lot distant. But in in his shows, in his movies, and on the radio, just ever so slightly removed. And Sinatra came from uh, came from uh, Italian stock. Uh, he, he was very much his mother's son, very much his mother's son. Dolly and Frank uh, were alike in so many ways, including, uh, including a volcanic temper. Uh, Frank could never be cool and removed. And uh, even though he idolized Bing from the beginning, and at first uh, when Frank was an unknown walking around Hoboken, he was a laughing stock. Uh, he, was, he, he wore a yachting cap like Bing. He smoked a pipe like Bing. But he didn't sing like Bing. His his Frank's singing was an entirely different matter than Crosby's singing. It was a different vocal production. It was a different tone. Uh, I'm I'm going to wade into the very deep waters that get deeper quickly of trying to analyze what it is about Sinatra's voice. But I'll just go back and say that there there was something about it. There was something spooky about it. They, uh, the, Span, the Spanish talk about duende, something that raises raises the uh, the goosebumps on your flesh. And, and Frank really had that. He had that certainly with women. He had it with men, too. Men, men too, loved the way he sang. And uh, that was going to be a very, uh, a very mixed phenomenon when it came to World War II, but um, Frank and Bing, Frank, uh, Frank really wanted to be a superstar like Bing, but 
the road split as far as the voices were concerned. Bing would always be a great singer. Frank was a great singer in an extremely different way. And let's hear a little bit of Frank Sinatra. This is Frank Sinatra with the Harry James Orchestra doing All or Nothing at All, a song that came out in the late 30s to pretty much no impact, but then was re-released in the mid-40s by Columbia Records when the record recording strike was going on because of the a musicians union was on strike. And so the record was resurrected and became an enormous hit. This is uh, Harry James and Frank Sinatra, All or Nothing at All. Frank Sinatra singing All or Nothing at All with Harry James. And before we get to Harry James, let's talk a little bit more about Dolly Sinatra and Frank's background. I mean, Frank would occasionally let journalists go with tales of, you know, a really hard scrabble childhood. And sometimes he gilded the lily, you know, talking about his rough Hoboken upbringing. But the Sinatras, (laughs) relatively speaking, were pretty prosperous. Yeah. uh, The only thing rough about Frank Sinatra's upbringing was all the I, I don't know. Are we? I'll try to avoid four-letter words. You all, can do it. Go okay. for it. Was all the shit that people gave people in Hoboken gave him for his presumption and for the way he put on airs. Uh, Sinatra's uh, upbringing was in no way hard scrabble. At birth, he weighed thirteen pounds. Dolly was under five feet tall. She decided she didn't want to go through that again. So Frank was that rarest of all things in the nineteen. 19- 1920s uh, among Italian Americans or Irish Americans or or anybody uh, uh, for that matter. He was an only child, and uh, Dolly uh, Dolly made a pretty good living as a midwife, uh, an occasional abortionist. She also worked as a candy dipper. She was extremely clever as far as making money was con- concerned, and so they always lived in nice apartments in Hoboken. And Frank was a spoiled kid. He had his own bedroom. He had his own collie dog named Gurley that he loved. He had his own Atwater Kent Cathedral model radio. And so he could listen to that radio, close the door of his room and and listen to Bing Crosby sing and and dream. And you do, uh, you paint a very vivid picture of Dolly and Frank's relationship. And and Dolly was someone who was a loving mother and a protective mother. But like you said, she had a volcanic temper. And Frank learned very early on to be wary of Dolly. And and she left him sort of a confused imago in the sense of, you know, the model that people seek out in their, in their life mates. I mean, on the one hand of his marriages, his three marriages, Nancy Sinatra is very much this Italian traditional earth mother type with the, the big pot of pasta and the big family and, and the, the solid rock. But the real love of his life was Ava Gardner, who is anything but. And you sort of paint and, you know, and Dolly did not like Nancy and she loved Ava Gardner. And, and talk a little bit about that sort of need, that endless, bottomless emotional need that their relationship created in Frank. Yeah, well, Sinatra, to put it bluntly, never felt sure of Dolly's love. He said, I never knew whether she was going to hug me or hit me. And that that 
stamped Frank deeply. It stamped this uh, this reaction in, in him of really never being certain of a female's uh, uh, affection or love. And so in certain ways, Ava Gardner was the love of his life. She was mainly the love of his life because their love lasted for such a short time and because she was the one woman, woman of all the many, many, many women that Frank bedded, who Frank could never dominate. Uh, Ava, and, Ava and Dolly were very much alike, but I would differ with you slightly about the love of his life. Ava was the love of Frank's life because of her elusiveness. But Nancy was very much the love of Frank's life uh, from the beginning and until the end. And uh, long after Frank and Ava divorced and Frank was on his own uh, as, as a bachelor in the 50s and early 60s, uh, Frank and Nancy's relationship went on and continued. Frank would, even after, even after they divorced, Frank would come home periodically. And, and we don't know for sure, but uh, we have strong hints from Tina Sinatra that, uh, that Frank and Nancy continued even to be intimate uh, into the 1960s and even beyond that. And when you talk about Dolly and Frank, we're also going to talk about Marty Sinatra. And, you know, Frank is somebody who sort of had an early vision of wanting to be a singer, or at least that's the way he t told it later, that, you know, the first time he, somebody threw a quarter at him or a dime or a nickel probably <laughs> for singing at, the, at his father's bar, he was like, you know, this is the business you want to be in. How did his father react? I mean, Dolly hooked Frank up with a few jobs and his work resume is, you know, this side of John Lennon. I mean, just a really piss poor day job work resume. And how did his father react to, to you know, his son becoming what he thought would be a, you know, a bomb? Yeah, his father wasn't too impressed. But we should also point out that Frank was much closer to his mother, uh, even given all the unpredictability of Dolly, than he was to Marty Sinatra. Marty Sinatra was, he was kind of, uh, I'm not going to say a thug. He's a bit of an oaf. He was, uh, he, he tried to be a prize fighter early on. He had tattoos all over his arms back in the day when that sort of, that indicated something it doesn't indicate now. Uh, he worked as a steam fitter, but then Dolly, ever ambitious uh, through her political connections to the Democratic Party in Hudson County, New Jersey, Wangled, uh, wangled Marty a job at the fire department in Hoboken. And uh, uh, Marty was a guy who uh, Frank remembered hearing them argue through the bedroom wall late at night. And Dolly was going on and on with her argument. And all he heard from Marty was grunting like, uh, uh. He was, a, he was a man of very few words. Dolly was a woman who was intellectually brilliant. There was much more Dolly in Frank than there was Marty. So Marty's uh, initial uh, skepticism about Frank's, uh, Frank's occupation, being a singer, didn't, didn't mean a huge amount uh, to Frank. What was more important to him was impressing Dolly, which predictably enough was, uh, was a mixed bag. And there was a brief period, though, where Marty told Frank to get out of the house when it was clear that he wasn't going to bear down and get a day job, that he had embarrassed the family by losing a couple of the day jobs that they had arranged for him. And Frank had to go out and, and, and take off and couch surf in New York City. And he hears Billie Holiday there. And I, I think this was something that 
after reading this in the book and, and listening to a lot of Billie Holiday and listening to Frank closely, to me, it's like Frank is Frank, but there's a big helping of Bing Crosby in there and a huge helping of Billie Holiday. How do you measure that influence? I mean, was Frank truly a jazz singer like Billie Holiday? No, I think that, I think that Billie Holiday, um, uh, I think that Billie Holiday was, it, it is super obvious to say so, but she was almost from the beginning, a much more uh, vulnerable and damaged sounding uh, vocalist than Sinatra ever was. But her expressiveness, the quality she conveyed of living emotionally inside these frequently sad songs that she sang was definitely something that Sinatra had huge respect for. And you're right, during that period of couch surfing uh, in, in around Hoboken, then in New York City. Frank, who was then just an unknown, completely unknown teenager, uh, spent some time on 52nd Street, the street. 52nd Manhattan between uh, between 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue was a double row of brownstones, and practically every, every brownstone on the street had a jazz club in it. And young Frank, uh, if he could put together a few nickels, uh, could go and hear Billie Holiday. He could go and hear uh, Teddy Wilson or Count Basie or uh, uh, Art Tatum, any any number of these great uh, these great African American uh, musical geniuses. But Billie Holiday was the one who floored him. He really he he learned how he learned from her how to to put across a song emotionally and how much it cost how much work had to go into being able to do that. Yeah, and this is a period when he starts taking lessons from a sort of disheveled former opera singer who's quite affordable because of his alcohol habit. And he also meets a couple guys, one of whom is is Jimmy Van Usen, who goes on to become one of the, you say, not quite great songwriters, but a notable songwriter of the great American songbook period. He he was most notable for writing a number of songs for Bing Crosby. And I want to play one that this is a, a song that Frank Sinatra did with Tommy Dorsey, written by Jimmy Van Usen, called Polka Dots and Moonbeams. country dance was being held in a garden I felt a bump and heard an oh beg your pardon suddenly I saw polka dots and moonbeams all around the pug nose dreams and that was Sinatra with the Tommy Dorsey orchestra doing Jimmy Van Eusen and Johnny Burke's polka dots and moonbeams and we're a little ahead of ourselves with the musical selection but but this is you know one of these lifelong alliances and there's another guy hank santacola who was a song plugger at the time and it's very interesting to read about young frank when he is not even on the ladder of the music business he's below the bottom rung of the ladder and guys like van Eusen, who's an aspiring songwriter and song plugger and Santa Cola, who's a song plugger, are way above him on the food chain. And, they, and yet they take him in and sort of adopt him as a mascot and, and protect him. But around this time, he's still working in Hoboken, not getting paid, but he's working every opportunity. And Dolly really comes in and helps him land the first significant gigs of his career. Tell us a little bit about how Dolly helped kickstart Sinatra's actual career. 
Yeah, well, Frank uh, fancied himself a singer, and as I said, uh, he he put on a lot of airs and tried to look like Bing Crosby and got laughed at a lot. And he tried to convince real musicians and uh, around Hoboken and Jersey City to let him sing with them. They all just, uh, they refused him and they made fun of him until, until Dolly, ever the mixed bag, as far as, uh, as far as mothering Frank was concerned, um, did a couple of big things for Frank. Uh, she, she, she could be very rough on him. Uh, she could, uh, she could hit him, but at the same time, she spoiled him rotten. So he always had a beautiful wardrobe, for example. And then the more he insisted on uh, on wanting to become a singer, uh, the more Dolly listened. She bought him a, a, a sort of primitive sound system. It was a little, uh, it was a microphone connected to an amplifier. She bought him sheet music, and that cost money. And so he had a lot of sheet music to learn songs from. And unbelievably, when Frank was 15 years old, she bought him a car. She bought him a used uh, used convertible. And once Frank had these things, once he had the car and the sound system and the sheet music, the, uh, the musicians around Hoboken and Jersey City found Frank a little bit less resistible because he could bring something, uh, bring something to the party. He could ferry them around in his car. He could use his sound system to sing. And he had that, he had that sheet music. And uh, in fairly short order, Frank uh, landed a place with, uh, with a Hoboken uh, singing group who called themselves the, uh, the Three Flashes. And then they become the Four Flashes when Frank Sinatra joins up and they participate in, in a talent contest. A guy named Major Bose had these radio show talent contests and he quickly rejects the name. It sounds like Floor, Four Flushers and various things, renames them the Hoboken Four and they win the national contest and take off on tour. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is 1935, and this is an, an another unknown figure uh, in America today. But uh, but Major Bose back then was huge. He was America's Got Talent and the Voice uh, rolled into one. His radio show. He had uh, such a big organization going that he not only had the radio show, but he had these traveling companies of of Major Bose uh, Amateur Hour winners who traveled the country uh, entertaining. And Frank and the the other three members of the Hoboken Four went out on one of these buses with one of these troops uh, to uh, to ride around America and and to do shows. It didn't last too long, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately, I mean, uh, Frank was taking quite a few beatings from his bandmates, uh, and 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 you know they certainly didn't click, but it it did kickstart him, and he goes back to Hoboken and lands another key gig at the Rustic Cabin, which is a place that broadcasts their shows live. So now he's on WNEW, W New, radio show. Somebody very important hears him on the radio show, and that's the next big leap for Frank. Yeah, it was a huge leap for Frank. He didn't 
he didn't catch fire at the rustic cabin. Rustic cabin was a roadhouse uh, up on the uh, the Palisades of New Jersey, overlooking the George Washington Bridge. And it was a roadhouse. It was a tavern. It was a bit of a down and dirty place. It was known as a cheat joint. It was a place where married men would take their girlfriends on Friday night, date night. And Frank uh, Frank auditioned for the house band and was rejected at first. But he finally uh, convinced the owner to let him sing a bit. And that same thing happened with the girls and the women who were uh, who were customers of the rustic cabin. And yes, there was a radio hookup. And one Friday night in Manhattan, uh, Louise Tobin, who was a, a band singer with her husband, the great Harry James, happened to be listening to WNEW in their hotel room as Louise Tobin and Harry James were preparing for a gig. And Louise Tobin says to Harry James, Harry, come over here. I think you ought to hear this boy sing. He's pretty good. And that leads Harry James to sign him up as the new boy singer in the Harry James Orchestra. And for me, Harry James is somebody I've heard of. And if I've heard of a swing band leader, they must have been pretty big. But at this point, Harry James is anything but an established proposition. Well, he, Harry James was the same age as Sinatra. Uh, unbelievably enough, when Harry James uh, uh, hires Frank, he is nationally famous, Harry James is, and he's 23 years old. He has a big band that is widely known and widely loved and often on the radio and playing all kinds of shows. The problem with Harry James is that he was a terrible, he was a, he was a great trumpet player. Uh, he was a terrible a businessman and his band, he, he just, he, he couldn't seem to hold on to the money that he got paid uh, and pay his band. And so he was frequently, frequently running out of cash. Frank found this out to his sorrow very soon after joining Harry James. And, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it led, it led to something, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but when Harry James and his band played Chicago, uh, in 1939, uh, fall of 1939, uh, somebody very, very important got in touch with Frank uh, and, and asked him if he might want to jump ship. And that somebody was Tommy Dorsey, who was um, quite a bit higher on the food chain than Harry James. And Tommy Dorsey, singer had just left. He had an opening and he signs Frank up. And Frank, Harry James doesn't put any obstacles in his path. And Frank's on his way. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating and really telling about the relative importance of musicians to vocalists in this period is when Frank first joins the band, it's the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. His name is Top of the Marquee. But the featured performer tended to be another young hotshot, Buddy Rich, the drummer. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, the best frenemies relationship that Frank and Buddy developed. Well, here were two huge egos. I mean, even uh, even before they attained huge stardom, big, big egos, Frank Sinatra and Buddy Rich. And Tommy Dorsey went to a good deal of trouble to, ha to hire Buddy Rich for his band. Uh, and from the word go, uh, Frank Sinatra and Buddy Rich, uh, they were they were pretty much oil and water. Even though Buddy Rich told Frank at the outset, "I like the way you sing," which was, coming from an ego like Buddy Rich was a gigantic compliment. But uh, Dorsey made them roommates on the road with his band, uh, Frank and and Buddy. 
<laughs> just it it, the situation, it didn't work out. I think I think the the legend is, and I think there's some truth to it that Frank was uh, clipping his toenails one night, uh, ever the night owl at like two thirty in the morning, and uh, Buddy just couldn't go to sleep, and they got they got into a fist fight. And you know they're both bantamweights, so I'm sure nobody was seriously hurt, but. Later on, Buddy takes a beating from some strangers, and it's long been suspected that Frank had something to do with that. Yeah, Frank wanted uh, it, it was a vendetta, and Frank wanted revenge. And yeah, he had he had Buddy Rich uh, beaten up by a couple of his uh, his thug friends. Frank was in with some thugs from the very beginning, and that's a whole deep subject all its own. But the amazing thing about the beating of Buddy Rich is not long after that. When Buddy decided to go out on his own and start his own band, Frank, who by this time had uh, had started making some real money as a solo artist, uh, bankrolled Buddy Rich to the tune of about thirty five thousand dollars. When when so no hard feelings there on either side. An amazing an amazing thing. I think they just they may have not been able to uh, to be friends, but they had great respect for each other. And let's take a quick commercial break, and when we get back, we'll talk more about this dark underworld subject that just can't be avoided when you talk about Frank Sinatra. And so we've mentioned the impact of Frank Sinatra's underworld connections on Buddy Rich, but it's the relationship with Tommy Dorsey where those underworld stories literally become American legend, uh, Hollywood you know, lore in the Godfather films, at least, and the fictional retelling of, of the Frank Sinatra-Tommy Dorsey relationship. And, you know, Frank and Tommy have a very successful relationship. Tommy's initially Frank's mentor, the person he admires most after Dolly Sinatra. He studies everything Tommy does. He adopts certain, you know, affectations and bits of his wardrobe and learns a ton about breath control and music and how to, you know, connect with an audience. So they, it's a very positive relationship for a long time. But when Frank makes it clear he's going to leave the nest. Tommy Dorsey is a very tough character and a very good businessman. And he doesn't just let him go. He wants a lot of money for a long time. I think various reports say up to a third of Frank's income in perpetuity was his goal. And somehow that ends that, that, you know, Tommy (laughs) Dorsey doesn't, does not get that amount of money. And there's a story you tell in the book about, you know, some of the same caliber of goons that beat up Buddy Rich are sent to Tommy Dorsey. And Tommy Dorsey's a big, tough dude, and he just laughs in their faces. How do you think that relationship ended? And did the role of real heavy hitters like Willie Moretti, uh, one of the gang bosses of Hoboken, come into that? Well... Listen, we have the myth and we have the reality, and reality is always more complicated, more naughty, uh, and I'm sorry to say a little more boring than the myth. The myth is, the myth comes straight out of one of the great movies of all time, The Godfather, in which there is a very Sinatra-esque singer named Johnny Fontaine, and he is singing for a band leader much like Tommy Dorsey. Johnny Fontaine wants to leave the band and, and go be a movie star. Uh, the band leader won't let him and as the godfather Marlon Brando tells the story uh, one of his associates meets with the band leader in the movie and uh, tells the band leader that either his signature uh, or his brains are going to be on the contract releasing uh, Johnny Fontaine Uh, in real life it wasn't 
that way, really. I mean, Frank had, thanks to a couple of things, thanks to Dolly, who was, a, as I said before, very well connected politically in Hudson County. Dolly was also very well connected, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, to organized crime. And Frank had a kind of uh, a North Jersey godfather, a gangster named Willie Moretti. And uh, the story goes, as you said, that Willie Moretti sent a couple of tough guys to uh, to put the squeeze on Tommy Dorsey to let Frank go. And uh, Dorsey, who, as you said, was a very tough guy himself, essentially laughed in their faces. He said, listen, <laughs> this kid has become a pain in the ass. I'm only too happy to let him go. Well, the truth is, <clears throat> Dorsey had mixed feelings about letting Frank go. Frank was a huge draw. He made Tommy Dorsey a lot of money. Uh, he did make all the Dorsey did make all these stipulations, tried to hold on to, to Frank's uh, income in perpetuity if Frank left him. But between a between squadrons of lawyers and perhaps perhaps a couple of threatening phone calls uh, to Tommy Dorsey, it all got ironed out. Frank left the band, went out on his own, very unsure at the beginning whether he would make it. And Tommy Dorsey's final words to Frank when Frank left were, I hope you fall on your ass. <laughs> charming. The charming Tommy Dorsey, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and But it's a bigger part. It's more than just a story of a singer and a band leader. It's, it's, a, it's a turning of the eras because band leaders had very much dominated this period. Even though Bing Crosby was a huge star through the 30s, he was a star of radio and film and record. He wasn't touring after the early 30s. He wasn't out on the road. The people that were out on the road were people like Tommy Dorsey and Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Benny Goodman and Harry James and the you know most of those guys played instruments or all of them played instruments but they really were more like the reason their name was on top of the bill was they were the conductor and I think the best way for people in 21st century to understand the role of a band leader is they were the DJs of their era they were the guy who was on the bandstand directing the band but also watching the crowd and watching what the crowd was dancing to and making sure that the band was serving that audience and so that was how the band leaders dominated and most records were used for dancing and 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 live performances were always dancing there was no disco to compete with you could not go to a club you know open up a club and just play records that was unheard of and until much later i, I mean it, technically i think jimmy savile in england started paying charging people to do djing in the 40s but nobody else was doing that and but then certain things start to conspire against these big bands there's the war which means rubber rationing gas rationing you know prices go up the the bands are getting drafted wholesale yeah and then there's a musician strike, so they can't make records either. I mean, you know, Frank does some acapella records in his first years at Columbia Records. And so it's part of this big sea change where singers take over for from instrumentalists, and Frank is absolutely on the cutting edge of that. He's on the cutting edge, but he very quickly finds himself uh, swamped by the huge wave that overwhelms America after World War II. And that wave is its essentially uh, the same thing that happened after World War I. America changed in 1945. After the war was over, America was 
incredibly relieved and just wanted to turn the page. Sinatra had made his career uh, become a superstar in 1943 and 1944 and 1945 by singing these ballads of yearning that made the women uh, back home think of their boys fighting overseas and in danger overseas. Once armistice comes and the war is over, uh, the story changes and America wants to forget those days of yearning and uncertainty and sadness and move on to something sunnier and more escapist. So musical tastes change and the big bands, which, as you point out, uh, were so hard hit economically uh, by the war, various factors fall apart and uh, everything is proceeding at uh, in a different direction entirely at a very rapid pace. And uh, and Sinatra is not flourishing under these circumstances for a number of uh, uh, interlocked reasons, uh, a lot of which had to do with Frank uh, vigorously shooting himself in both feet uh, a lot of the time. And before we start the downfall, there's just one or two more things I want to get to. One is his deal with MGM Studios. First, he's with RKO and does some films where they're pretty stock, just B-movie stuff, and he plays the boy singer singing. But then uh, Louis B. Mayer at MGM sees him and says, I want that boy, and gets him into big-time movies. And and he works uh, in films with, like, Anchors Away is his big wartime hit, and then he does On the Town, working with Gene Kelly – uh, singing, dancing, and, and wearing a sailor suit. And that really enhances his stardom beyond just the Bobby Soxers. And I want to, I want to, you know, like looking at Bing Crosby and looking at Frank Sinatra and looking at Elvis and they have more in common than just having, you know, these great mammoth biographies that have come out in the past few years about them. They were all film stars. And I think we forget that, that the, the real role of cinema at that time before television was so enormous. And Frank, in both phases of his career, succeeds in cinema in a way that really puts his image in the face of so many Americans who could never see him live. And, and I just wanted to get to that. And he does do an album um, before his erosion, The Voice of Sinatra, the first time they collect his 78s into an album, which was truly an album, like a photo album, you know, a big book, and you'd open it up, and there'd be multiple heavy 10-inch discs in there. And he I, is a ranger. I have a copy. Uh, awesome. His arranger, Axel Stordhall, and he, he transitions even at that phase from just singing to the Bobby Soxers, but starts doing these standards, these American standards, as a mature artist and is quite successful with that album. Very successful with that album. And uh, uh, yeah, he's very successful with that album. But uh, but as he proceeds as a Columbia Records uh, recording star, the world is, the ground is moving under his feet very, very quickly. And despite the success of that album, uh, American tastes in popular music are changing extremely rapidly. And this is an era I've been really fascinated with, and we've talked about a lot in the show, and the guy Mitch Miller, you know, uh, comes into the picture. And Sinatra had originally been signed by the head of Columbia A&R, Manny Sachs, who's one of his biggest backers and a close personal friend, which, you know, wasn't easy. And Frank punished him relentlessly for being uh, both a good boss and a close friend. But Manny leaves to go to RCA and Mitch Miller comes in and Mitch Miller 
in retrospect, is often seen as some sort of philistine because you know he hated rock and roll and he did these stupid sing along with Mitch records that were massively popular. And so, my first perception of him was that he was just sort of a buffoon. But you make it very clear. The guy was a gifted classical musician. He was an oboist, you know, the top oboist in the New York session scene and with orchestrations. Also was a big jazz fan and and was initially sympathetic and friendly with Frank, hooked him up with uh, Alec Wilder, and the two of them cooked up a scheme where Frank actually conducted sessions and put out an album, Frank Sinatra Conducts the Music of Alec Wilder. And, you know, so it's not just this black and white story of here's this money-grabbing Philistine who takes over, but Mitch Miller has his finger on the pulse. And like you say, something really big happened to American music in that period, because we go from the Gershwin era, the era that's retrospectively seen as the great American songbook, you know, Gershwin and Cole Porter and Harold Arlen and so many other great songwriters. And this was the material Frank thrived on. This was the stuff he studied. This was the kind of songs where if you really studied the lyrics, you could really tell a, a tale in a way that other singers couldn't. And all of a sudden, that's not selling. It's how much is that doggy in the window? And this song uh, by Frank Sinatra and Dagmar called Mama Will Bark. Thing you ever She said, Mama will bark. You look so lovely in the moonlight. Yes, but Papa will bark. Your eyes are shining like the starlight. Yes, but Mama will bark. Your lips are so inviting, darling. Give me one more kiss. Mama will sing. The night is young and you are here so near. But Papa will sing. Please let me whisper in your ear, my dear. And that was the notorious Mama Will Bark by Frank Sinatra and a woman named Dagmar. And that wasn't even a hit. Um, but Frank, you know, is lowering himself to do this. But like you point out, his contract with Columbia gave Frank veto power over these songs. Frank went along with Mitch Miller. He recorded Goodnight Irene and had a big hit with it, the Weaver's big uh, hit of the Lead Belly song. I mean, Frank tried to keep it up during this period and just nothing was working. Nothing was working because there he is again with a six gun in each hand shooting himself in the foot. He, Frank, between 1940, well, actually, the moment he moved to Hollywood, the trouble began. Uh, Frank and his family moved to Hollywood in 1943. He goes to work for RKO. But the thing about Hollywood is that it is the world capital uh, of the world's most beautiful women. And Frank suddenly finds himself in this glorious orchard full of magnificent fruit and begins plucking an apple here, a pear here, an orange there, uh, stepping out with every actress he can. And he get he gets in very bad odor, not only with Nancy, but with the press. Uh, that was, but that was only the first of the calamities that Frank began to visit on himself. His decline was so multi-determined, uh, uh, and it, it was not just about American pop, American taste and popular music changing. Yeah, I mean, not only does he have his brilliant publicist, and you know longtime basically mentor George Evans, who had helped not gin up the hysteria earlier, but amplify and control the, the fan hysteria. But George Evans was ready to take on these challenges that Frank was was inflicting on himself and his whole team. And George Evans drops dead at 48. So there's one big hurt. And then he decides to go to Havana 
and may or may not have carried money to Lucky Luciano, who was in exile, the former mob boss of New York, who was in Havana, which was at that time essentially under the control of the American organized crime. You know, Meyer Lansky and Batista, the dictator of Cuba, had this alliance, and Lansky was running the casinos, and Batista was taking a big share. And organized crime has this big meeting in Havana, and Frank's right there, and it's not discreet, and tons of reporters see him and report on it, and that permanently damages Frank Sinatra's image. Yeah, there was one guy in particular named Robert Ruark who was in Havana to uh, to write some columns. He was a columnist uh, for the Hearst Papers. The Hearst Papers were, just to take a step back, uh, way before the internet ever showed up, newspapers had enormous power in America. And the Hearst Syndicate was the biggest of the syndicates of newspapers. And Ruark was one of their biggest columnists. And there he is in Havana uh, to write about Hemingway. But one night, Robert Ruark is sitting at the Hotel Nacional, and there across the dining room, Frank Sinatra and Lucky Luciano are breaking bread together. So Ruark quickly changes directions, puts Hemingway on the shelf for a little bit, and starts writing these columns about Frank uh, cozying up to uh, mafiosi. And before you know it, with the Hearst Syndicate pushing this story in, uh, in Ruark's columns, uh, Frank has Frank has become infamous. And there was more than just his association with mobsters and his cheating on his wife. During the war, Frank had become a really outspoken voice of tolerance. He was a big supporter of the Roosevelts and campaigned hard for them. He was on the Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the left of the left side of, of that political alliance. And he did film work and sang songs outspokenly campaigning for tolerance. And he was an outspoken um, supporter of African-American rights and uh, not quite integration because that fight wasn't happening yet, but very much, you know, he went out of his way to have black groups and performers opening for him. He was already being a mentor to a young Sammy Davis Jr. at this time. So there's an element of the right wing wanting to get at him because he's frankly, a leading figure on the left in, in popular music, and they go after him. And he doesn't help things by actually assaulting a pundit named Lee Mortimer in a club. So it's just, you know, like you say, he piles thing on thing, and, and he, you know, he, he actually gets dropped by Columbia Records. He loses his radio shows, and he's got TV deals in the early days, but his TV, you know, he's going up against Uncle Milty and television was never Sinatra's medium. So all of these things, like the second half of this book is just this relentless tearing down of Frank Sinatra. And like you say, so much of it is self-inflicted and so much of it has to do with Ava Gardner. I mean, and it's hard, you know, from this, our vantage point today, Lana Turner, Ava Gardner, they've all sort of blended together, but there was a real difference in magnitude. I mean, you know, Frank, Lana Turner was one of Frank's conquests. She was one of, she was one of many women that he had serious love affairs with and, and teased with, maybe we're going to, you know, maybe I'll leave my wife for you, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that, you know, it doesn't happen with her. It doesn't happen with Marilyn Mans Maxwell does not happen with Lauren Bacall. But it does happen with Ava Gardner, and she was just next level. I think there's a brilliant statement you have in the book where you say she's that most dangerous of people, a gorgeous nihilist. (laughs) (laughs) This woman did not care about anything. She was a film star because she was beautiful and she had this presence, but she had never had an ambition to be an actress. She was 
just somebody who was basically looking for a good time and looking for trouble. And Frank Sinatra was kind of both at one and they have an absolutely epic off the chain, you know, Madonna and Sean Kanye and, and the Kardashians type celebrity love story that keeps Frank in the press throughout the long, long five or six years when he cannot buy a hit. Yeah, uh, the the press the press loved it. Everything you say is exactly right. Uh, this was all those people you mentioned before that happened. Uh, Ava Gardner was uh, she was unbelievably beautiful, and uh, MGM manufactured her as a movie star. Ava just had she had the 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 bone structure and the looks, and MGM turned her into a star. And from the moment that MGM decided to do that, she her trajectory was was kind of straight up. And this was happening in direct opposition, contrast to Sinatra, whose trajectory was 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 headed down. Uh, and Ava and and Frank, who were very similar in a lot of ways, Ava was in many ways similar to Dolly, except for for being taller and much, much prettier. Uh, Ava had the same volcanic temper. Ava had uh, that same volcanic impatience. And uh, as as promiscuous as Frank Sinatra was, Ava could match him. Victim for victim, mark for mark. Uh, she she didn't care who she slept with. She didn't care about breaking anybody's heart. She didn't care about breaking anything. She went about her life exactly as she wanted to, and this is exactly what Frank did. And so there are a lot of strange things going on in their uh, attraction for each other. One was this great similarity between the two. One was this open, outspoken, excuse me, this unspoken uh, similarity to Dolly. Uh, and and of course the the chemical the physical attraction, and Ava we shouldn't forget uh, she 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 had very strong feelings for Frank uh, and for Frank's talent. She said that Frank's voice evoked something in her that that only a children's choir at Christmas could evoke in her. It gave her goosebumps. It made her want to cry listening to Frank sing. So it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just an easy lay. It wasn't just a uh, it wasn't just a one night stand or a, a hundred night stand. It wasn't the affair of a moment. It wasn't all physical. There was a lot going on on both sides and between the two of them. Absolutely. And, you know, as a student of popular music, this is one of the great love affairs in the mythology of popular music over the last century. It's right up there with the Brian Jones, Keith Richards, Anita Pallenberg triangle. And and Frank Sinatra very nearly Brian Jones did. I mean, you know, if if yeah. he loses his voice, his, yeah. you know, he miss sings and, and literally there's a concert where he can't sing. His material is down the toilet. He uh, takes bad gig after bad gig, but you manage to get the comeback, and he has one of the most amazing comebacks in all time. And there's two elements of it. We'll talk about them both after this break. But here's the song that started his comeback. This is the first song he recorded for Capitol Records, arranged by Nelson Riddle. I've got the world on a string. I've got the world on a string. Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world, 
What a life I'm in love. I got a song that I sing. I can make the rain go. And that was Frank Sinatra's version of I've Got the World on a String with Nelson Riddle arranging. And this is the beginning of a new era. And one other thing I want to go back to that you mentioned in the book that, that I really hadn't been aware of, but it crystallized something that I've been grappling towards in reading this is when Frank Sinatra started out in the late thirties, there really wasn't a concept of the standard or the great American songbook that that's something that Artie Shaw, who was Ava Gardner's ex-husband and one of Frank's big romantic rivals and a rival to Tommy Dorsey and Harry James as one of the great band leaders of the era. But Artie Shaw and Frank Sinatra, along with Billie Holiday kind of create this notion of a standard because songs, the work of Cole Porter and the Gershwins, et cetera, et cetera, originally was just pop songs and Broadway songs. It was just, here's a new song. This is a hit. Record it, play it live, sell sheet music, make money. Great. It's a good song, even better. But Artie Shaw realized if you went back a couple years and sang some of these Cole Porter songs that maybe hadn't hit at the time, or there was a Gershwin song that was a big hit for somebody else as a singer, but now you could do it as a band and get more big hits. And Frank jumped on that and really helped create this concept of the Great American Songbook. And I've Got the World on a String is a, a definitive example of that. And, and you know, Frank gets lucky and that there's a sympathetic executive at Capitol Records who wants to sign him after he's been dropped. And, you know, this really rarely happens in American musical history where you have somebody who's a superstar that falls so low, they get dropped by their record label and can't get signed by anybody else. This has happened very few times to somebody of Sinatra's magnitude. And there's this long period where Sinatra, you know, he's, he's passed by by Eddie Fisher, Johnny Ray, Frankie Lane, Buddy Clark, so many other singers step into the wake, and and it, Frank could have been forgotten if he had died in a car crash in you know 1952. We'd only have these early years, and you make the point, you know, that this was a guy who was a massive superstar who recorded a couple dozen great sides in that period. I mean, he had a significant contribution already, but the Frank Sinatra that we know now is really forged starting with "I've Got the World on the String" and going forward with Capitol Records. Absolutely. And we shouldn't forget that Alan Livingston was the executive, young executive at Capitol Records, who thought that Sinatra, despite his downfall, was still great. And he signed Sinatra for a standard uh, recording agreement, which was a three-figure contract, if you can imagine that. And when wow. Alan Livingston uh, tells his sales force that he has signed Frank Sinatra, they all groan in unison. Uh, Frank Sinatra seemed like such bad news to them so much, so yesterday, as far as they were concerned. But Alan, Alan Livingston uh, really had vision and a big part of his, uh, his prescience about, uh, about Sinatra was that he wanted to put Frank together with this young arranger who nobody had ever heard of or barely heard of, certainly Sinatra hadn't heard of him, uh, Nelson Riddle. And, uh, and it was magic from the start. And Sinatra knew when he met Nelson Riddle and began to sing those, those gorgeous arrangements that he was encountering a, a musical genius on, uh, on a level uh, that, that matched his own. 
And this is one piece of the comeback. And the other piece of the comeback is Frank finally gets the big dramatic role he's been after. And he was never happy doing, you know, singing and dance numbers and wearing the sailor suit. He always felt that he had the ability to get across a serious performance. And he manages to get himself a role in From Here to Eternity based on James Jones' massive bestseller after the war. And this is another one where there's a Hollywood legend dramatized in The Godfather of horse heads being placed in a, a film executive's bed to get him that part. As you say in the book, that wasn't needed. And that was not needed. No, this is a case where, you, you know, the, the story about the gun to the band leader's head and the band leader releasing Johnny Fontaine, that was, that had some threads of truth in it. But the horse's head story really had none. There was a guy named Harry Cone, who was uh, who was head of Columbia Pictures, and uh, he was famous as the biggest lecher in Hollywood, which was saying something in those days, saying something at any time. But he's head of Columbia Pictures, and he buys this big war novel by James Jones, From Here to Eternity, which is a gigantic bestseller. Uh, Harry Cohn buys this uh, buys this novel, options this novel. Frank reads the novel, and this is when Frank's career is in the toilet in 1951. He reads the novel and decides that one of the main characters in the book, uh, this, this little soldier named Maggio, is himself that he that he Frank Sinatra was born to play the role in the movie of From Here to Eternity, and uh, Harry Cohn just uh, laughed at Sinatra at this idea. He had uh, Cohn did he had somebody who he wanted for the role, a great actor named Eli Wallach. The real story of what happened and of how Frank got this role has to do with Ava Gardner, of all people, because Ava Gardner, despite the fact that Frank's career is uh, is effectively ended, uh, goes to Cohn at Columbia Pictures and tells Cohn, the biggest lecturer in Hollywood, that she will give Harry Cohn a, a free movie, no salary, if Harry Cohn will give Frank a screen test. So Cohn says, oh, it looks save up and down and <laughs> figures, well, maybe I can get something else for free too, and gives Sinatra a screen test. And Sinatra aces it, does not beat out Eli Wallach, actually. It, it, it suddenly happens that Eli, it, this is, again, reality is too complicated, but Eli Wallach decides he doesn't want to do a movie. He wants to go do a Tennessee Williams play on Broadway. And so Eli Wallach is out of the picture. And Sinatra, who by the way, did a magnificent screen test, gets the role of Maggio in From Here to Eternity. And and wins the Oscar, and that's where you end the book, and I guess that's as good a place as any to end the show. James, it's been so great to have you on and talk about this wonderful book, and I hope we can have you back on soon to talk about part two, The Chairman, which is, if anything, even more epic and triumphant and tragic than this one. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, for, thanks so much for having me, Nate. It was a ball. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Peter Garalnik joins Nate to discuss his book, Looking to Get Lost. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com.
Frank, The Voice, is published by Anchor. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.